when I was young, uh, I played baseball on on the local teams. Uh, now, the thing is, if if you're a kid and you like to play baseball, you probably also like baseball movies. And and the thing is, in the baseball movies, the the young players always practice by going into a big field alone, sort of like tossing the ball in front of themselves, to themselves, and practice batting that way. Now, now the movies make this look amazing, like really profitable, that like you can truly play baseball and have a rich experience of this game just by yourself. Now, in reality, batting practice, at least like that, and trying to enjoy Baseball by yourself is, is not very effective <laughs> in the slightest. Now, I mean, like, on several occasions, I tried to sort of like toss the ball for myself kind of tactic, and it turned into more of a game of pick the ball off the ground sort of activity. And the thing is, though, even, even if you make good contact with the ball, well, what happens when you're by yourself? Well, the brief excitement of possible home run swing quickly dissipates, realizing that there's no point in running the bases, and I have to go find the ball by myself. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, playing on a team in a real game is charged with special energy. Not not only is someone pitching the ball at you, but the pitcher has skill, forcing you to engage the task more deeply. When you hit the ball, you need to to circle the bases because you need points against the other team. And you have to run quickly because they will be getting the ball back into the infield to get you out if you're not doing what you need to do. And so although... I suppose you accomplish something of baseball by yourself. Some things are built to be most effective as team activities. I think part of the problem here is individualism characterizes modernity. Carl Truman's recent, really important, magnificent book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, argues that what he calls expressive individualism is the flavor of our age, meaning that discovering and realizing our true identity according to our most private inner being is the, the most authentic way to live, sending everyone on that mystical quest to uncover what is secret but most true of themselves in their heart. Whatever that means. Traditional Christianity, on the other hand, not, not the pietism, the, the blend of mysticism or, or, extravagant revivalism that has dominated the the popular Christian mindset since the late 19th century, but truly traditional Christianity has taken the opposite mindset. In other words, whereas less confessional attempts at, at Christianity share some fundamental assumptions about the priority 
of our hidden internal life, what we take essentially the opposite view, that the Christian life isn't about our internal selves shaping our outward personal expression, but about God's work through external means forming, forging, and improving our internal life. In other words, the the difference between mysticism and confessionalism is to think of Christianity like the difference between microwaves and conventional ovens. Right? Microwaves nuke something from, from the inside out. And likewise, mystics seek their internal experience, uh, needing it to make over the outside, not only for themselves personally, but also making demands on their environment, including those who share it with them. But then confessionalists, and by that, what I mean is we who believe that our profession or confession of the living triune God shapes the fabric of our identity and practice. That's what I mean by that. Well, we believe Christianity functions more like an oven. The living God has committed to his people in Jesus Christ and promises to work upon us to deepen our experience of his love and increase our conformity with his holiness. And since God is above creation and and even as he indwells us by his spirit still remains distinct from us, we must accept that God works upon us. And so not everything originating within our hearts is from God. As we've been unpacking in this series so far on the means of grace, God uses his, uses those outward and ordinary means of grace to apply Christ to his people. And since these means, since these means are external to us, God cooks us so that we are well done in assurance and sanctification from the outside in. And so our question, in light of all that, is where is this oven so that we can get inside it to be divinely baked unto deeper comfort and greater godliness in the Christian life. If I can wildly mix our metaphors so far, the oven is our baseball game, right? More specifically, the place where we receive God's grace unto hope and holiness in the most focused and special way is the church gathered for Lord's Day worship. God has made it, God has made it so that his blessings in applying Christ to us through 
the means of grace come to us specially when we are doing things together. God has not promised to use our attempts to play baseball alone to help and and change us, but rather our corporate worship to drive the church and her members' lives. So our main point, our main point is then that God uses his ordinary means of grace to apply Christ to us primarily and specially in their use in the church's gathered life. God uses his ordinary means of grace to apply Christ to us primarily and specially in their use in the church's gathered life. And we're going to think about this in three points. A communal context, a gathering gladness, and a place of presence. But first... Let's think about the, the a communal context. And, and what I want to do here is just establish, think about the New Testament's teaching that the gathered life of the church has a special place in God's plan to work among and upon his people. So we'll start with Matthew 18 that we read. And then inclu- include other passages into that. So, so in the, in the verses we read, 15 to 20, the, the scope concerns reconciliation between believers. Now, so, like, we, j- we just need to make sure we know what's going on. That's not exactly where we're getting, but first, you know, you, you have to speak directly to a person who wronged you, hoping the issue resolves easily. <coughs> Second, that doesn't work. You take one or two people with you to help. Finally, and here's where we need to pick up, right, at verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, so the situation changes hands from individual Christians to the church formally. And Jesus extends his point, saying, truly... I say to you, speaking to the church as such at this point, whatever you, O church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, showing how God truly accomplishes heavenly things through the church. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, and now here, this is where it's really crucial, right? What's for? Because, so we have a reason showing us that the, why the actions that the church does, why the church's actions and what they do effectively accomplishes heaven realities on earth. Why does, why does God accomplish heaven realities through the church? Because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus is truly present as his church 
assembles in his name for the accomplishment of heavenly realities on earth. Yes, the qualifier, right? Yes, Christ is always present with his people individually by the indwelling spirit. We're not denying that. And still, Jesus is telling us that he is present amongst the gathered church to bind heavenly realities on earth as they are declared in the assembly in a special way other than when he is present with us individually. And the, the point there about a few gathered in his name is about, it's not about a small informal group of believers, but it's about how Christ's powerful presence is guaranteed to a church assembly of any size. You're going to be a small church. Jesus will act powerfully in your midst, in his special presence. And other scriptures, so we've, we've made our point, and we just want to pull in other scripture to support it. Right? And namely, we're trying to support that gathering in Jesus' name means an official gathering of the church. So let me just read a couple of verses to you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, noting the assembly, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both our, both their Lord and ours. Matthew 28, 19, we considered a few weeks back. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, right, belongs to the church's formal actions as church and is done in God's triune name. Directly about church discipline, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled, this one's, I mean, blatant in your, in your face about the point we're making. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man who is unrepentant, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The assemb- the church's assembly in Christ's name constitutes a place of special action that Jesus has promised to be present in special power. Christ's special power to administer himself in grace is a communal context where the church is together in his name. So, we've seen just the the special presence of Christ to work heavenly realities in the assembly of his people. And that brings us to our second point. A gathering of gladness. A gathering of gladness. And so given, um, given that New Testament evidence that the assembled church is the place of Christ's special presence, well, as we turn to Psalm 84, well, now we better understand why the psalmist writes so wonderfully 
of God's courts, don't we? Verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. I hope now we have a new appreciation of the Lord's dwelling place. But it's no longer, as would be understood in this psalm, it's no longer Jerusalem's stone temple, but amongst the church assembled in Christ's name. So so pulling together our themes so far, we see why now why it's such a delight to be in the Lord's courts, since there we have his special presence. There there's a a sense in which I think um, a lot of believers need to recover the wonder of delighting in God's presence. Let's just kind of think about the um, principle of delighting in a moment more widely. Right when, when we meet for family reunions, we don't question what else this meeting of our family helps us achieve. What am I going to get out of being together with my family? What, what, it, what does this then help me do? What, what's the mechanical payoff that because I did this on the other side, I, I have something better? That's not the way we think about family reunions. When we sit down over our favorite meal, we don't wonder how it will help improve our lives beyond these moments of experiencing its flavor. It's just about tasting. When we look upon the the most scenic horizon, standing on a a coastline with the, the sun sinking into or rising from the waters before us, we don't ask what good this will do us tomorrow. We just know it's beautiful now. And even the church, I think, has too deeply imbibed a pragmatic spirit that, so that often we can't remember that we don't have to, we don't always have to think about the purpose of a moment beyond itself. Some moments are not meant to have ends beyond themselves. Some things are built for delight in the moment. We have forgotten the joy, the joy of delighting in the moment itself. We have perhaps even more forgotten that Lord's Day worship is not Primarily, 
Underline it. Lord's Day worship is not primarily for preparing you for something else. So much, so much as it is for delighting in and enjoying the special presence of our Lord. And so we have to learn to recover an awareness of the present moment. And in this case, I suppose I very literally do mean the present moment. To be invested here and now so that we might enjoy what gathered worship provides here and now. Not as the prospect of some later, greater payoff, but the privilege of delighting in the Lord's special presence as we speak. We need to be enriched with the truth that corporate worship is to imbibe God's presence. If, as claimed in this sermon series so far, and we'll continue throughout, God applies Christ through His means of grace, then to pray, both in our hearts and as we sing, that is to drink of the Lord Jesus. That is to take Him in as you pray. To be under the word heard as it is read and preached and and under the word held as we receive it in the sacraments is to partake of Christ who personally comes to us through His Word. And this is why the psalmist pulls two astounding claims together. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, which is now the church, right? Ever singing your praise. And then backing against that, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, the place of God's assembled people. Zion, right? The blessing is to be in God's house, to be the place of God's presence. And that is how, that is how we have our strength in the Lord. Our worship is a gathering of gladness as God's people come together. And here we encounter the Lord as as directly as we can in this life. And that brings us to our Final point, (coughs) a place of presence. I wonder if you've thought much about Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, to be filled with the Spirit. I think this is a phrase that we know well. And I wonder how well we've connected it up to what he says in these verses. So he writes, Do not get drunk with wine, 
for that is debauchery. But, so in in contrast to drunkenness, be filled with the Spirit. Now, our question is probably going to be, how? How how can I be filled with the Spirit in this way? And he tells us, by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So one way the Spirit fills us is when Christians sing God's Word together back to Him. Singing, I think contrary to what a lot of people think, singing is not about your individual experience with a melody or moving words, but is about, as Paul tells us, addressing one another with God's praise so that as God's sung words enter our ears together, the Spirit increases in our hearts. And here's the issue. According to to these verses, at least, being filled with the Spirit's presence requires our presence together. You can't address one another to be filled with the Spirit unless you're present together. Right? It is fitting that God be specially present with us as we are, well, specially present with one another. This is the one time, the one day in the week that we're together like this, isn't it? And so it's special. Not in a a superficial sense. Special because it's fitting that this is the time God would be specially present with us. And scripture clearly teaches God's special love for his gathered people. Psalm 87, 1 and 2. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. So, so the, the concentrated place where, where God's people to, uh, dwell together, marked by his presence in the temple, the holy mount. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, the city of, of God's corporate people, right? Now catch it, catch it, this. The, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Individual houses. God loves the place where his people assemble together more than their individual houses. Right? This is a New Testament reality as well, though. Revelation 21 Two to three. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, a bride adorned for, adorned for her husband. This is the church's dwelling together in our, right? The city is the bride adorned for her husband. The church dwelling together in our everlasting condition. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God dwells with his people in the, in the everlasting state. As a corporate people. Now, here's the thing. We, we've got past in Psalm 87, 84. We've got the future in the perfected gathering of the new creation. And so, so presently, our time, here and now, where we live our lives, between the past type of that Jerusalem temple and that future perfected gathering and new creation, the church. The church is the most loved body of God's people. The place of God's special dwelling. In Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, Paul said that all believers are God's household in Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When the church is present together, God promises to be specially present. And that is where he specially distributes and blesses his ordinary means of grace. Church is then a place of rest. Our our songs our addresses to one another to fill us with the Spirit as His temple. Because the temple is the dwelling place of the Spirit. And God accomplishes that as we do the things of worship. Our prayers together are long gulps whereby we drink deeply of Christ, having Him and His benefits applied to us. The word read and preached is the announcement of our God pressing His presence into His people's midst. And so, we see then why the psalmist said in Psalm 84, 8 and 10, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, Look on the face of your anointed because one day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. And as wonderful as it is to delight in that, one of the the things that, that makes it so delightful is we know it's true because just like this psalmist, we continue to ask God to look on the face of His anointed, don't we? His Messiah, the church's one foundation. We ask Him, we ask God the Father to look at Christ, the anointed, so that He might see us with the perfection 
that he sees his risen son. As we are filled with the Spirit, as he inhabits our praises, we must remember that Christ always makes himself present with his people by the Spirit. And therein, we know how rich the church is as a place of presence. Right? Because, because the Father is infinitely present with the Son from eternity, mutually dwelling, right? There, there's where our infinite presence comes from. From eternity, mutually indwelling one another in the divine essence. And yet, we remember, don't we, that Christ prayed that we would be as one as they are one. Now, creatures can't quite achieve that mutual indwelling. But Christ is praying that we'd get as close as possible. Right? And so as God, as God looks to the anointed, to the risen Christ, He becomes our shield. And so, we can say with the psalmist, hear our prayer. Because He hears us in the anointed. And so, one day, we might point out one day out of our week, right? One day better in God's courts than a thousand anywhere else. Here, we meet our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we encounter Christ in His ordinary means of grace. Let's pray. Father God, we realize that in the modern age, it is easy to think of church as another activity. One more thing we do. And here and now we ask, Lord, that you might help us recover this sense of delight. This idea that there is no greater thing we will do in this life than what we are doing right this moment. We bask in the presence of our God who has said he will meet us here when two or three gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. You didn't say that was dependent on the best songs. You didn't say it was dependent on exciting preaching for which we give thanks. You said, O Lord, in your word, that Jesus will be specially present when we are together in his name. And so we ask that we have a renewed appreciation, a new awareness that whatever this time might prepare us to do outside of it, well, we have this time. 
This time to come before our Lord and Redeemer. This time to hear your words of favor. This time to be assured of your grace. And this time to be changed by you unto new measures of glory, little by little. Even if we don't see it, God, we trust that you do, helping us along the way. And so as we leave, we just pray that you would make us aware that you have, you have been dwelling amongst us, inhabiting our praises, filling us with your spirit as we sing to one another, proclaiming your praise, and that that might lift our hearts for whatever you might call us to do in the days ahead. We pray all of this in the precious name of Christ, in whose name we have gathered. Amen.